now if you could stand if you're able as we read and honor God's word um, in Luke 14, 25 through 35. Now great crowds accompanied him and he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate, whether he's able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. And Liz, thank you for serving our church so well, often behind the scenes, many hours. Thank you. The famous British explorer, Ernest Shackleton, you might remember his name from the annals of history, led a series of expeditions to the Antarctic. And a story uh, encircles him in, on one account when he put an ad in the paper for uh, people for this journey, and it went like this. Men wanted for hazardous journey. Low wages, bitter cold, long hours of complete darkness, safe return doubtful, honor and recognition in event of success. Now, there's a lot of debate as to whether Shackleton himself wrote those words, but uh, they've been reprinted many times and I think lend themselves, importantly, to what has become the Shackleton Principle. And the Shackleton Principle is to recruit not by means of lowering the bar, because then what happens is you get a kind of uh, half-hearted adherence, uh, you get only a casual commitment, and what Shackleton knew is for such an endeavor of going to the Antarctic that you needed people who really understood what was, uh, the task was going to require to complete. And I think the Shackleton principle actually has its roots uh, not in the 19th century British explorer, but in Jesus himself in Luke chapter 14, the Jesus principle. That there are certain things in life that require a resilience, a kind of fortitude, a clear evaluation of what the task entails, and following Jesus is at the top of that list. I mean, I think that this makes sense to us at a deeper level. If you think anything that you've ever wanted to do in your life, anything worth doing, always comes at a cost. You know, I'm moved every time that Lauren Kowak plays piano at the holidays. The last couple of weeks, we've seen her play. Could you imagine, I really want to play the piano, but no scales for me, no practice, just want to be able to do it. Or the athlete, you know, say, well, you know, I'd love to be a great athlete, but no, no conditioning and no dietary changes. And they say, well, <laughs> good luck. 
So some say, well, I'd like to lead, but I don't want to make any decisions because then people will get mad at me. Or how about the old, the old marriage vow? You remember, you probably heard these words, that marriage is to be entered not lightly or unadvisedly, but thoughtfully, reverently, and in the fear of God. Anything worth doing comes at a cost. And if Jesus is our Savior and our Lord, which he is, and he is king, then our commitment to him should not surprise us that that will come with considerable cost, but it is a thing, as the heading of the sermon says, it is a price worth paying. And so today we look, no doubt, at these challenging words and see what it could mean for a place like Providence Church in 2023. So the context, verse 25, you see what's happened here, is the great crowds are following Jesus. Why are the great crowds following him? Well, because he's done neat things. That he's healed people, he speaks a little bit differently, he doesn't speak as the normal religious people, but speaks with a kind of authority. And so the crowds are are starting to get interested, and they come around him, no doubt, when there's some kind of crowd, more people come because they want to see. And this this large crowd starts to follow Jesus, and, you know, these are the kinds of things you you put yourself there, you know, try to picture Jesus doing this. But I, I love when Luke gives us this detail. He turns. He turns and he looks at them. And he says a most shocking line. Verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate... Wait, what? If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Say this causes the modern mind, at least, you know, to recoil. Say, wait a second here. In order to follow Jesus, I have to do what? Now, we do a moment, we say, the Bible never contradicts itself. Jesus never gets confused and doubles back like a modern-day politician. What's he saying here? Is Jesus contradicting the fifth commandment? You remember the fifth commandment? Honor your father and your mother. Say, has Jesus forgotten the fifth commandment? He says, you know, that's out of the window. What I need you to do is be hateful. Is that what he's saying? No, that's not what he's saying. He's using a Semitic rhetorical device. Basically saying, if you like other things, if you like the things of this world that you, in which you find security and, 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 and worth, if you like those things more than me, this isn't for you. If you're in this for the show, if you're in this for relief on a few material things happening in your life, I don't think you've got it. Rather, what we ought to do is evaluate what the most important relationship is. It's as if Jesus is saying the relationship with him will govern all other relationships. That if I put any other person or any other uh, bit of my, my, my circumstances before Jesus, then things are going to get wobbly and be out of line. But rather what I should do is put Jesus first, and what we'll find is that a lot of those other relationships with our parents, with our children, with our spouse, those two fall into line as well. I, the comparison I always come back to is, is buttons on a shirt. Say maybe you've been getting dressed in haste and you, you slip the you know, what, second button on the first buttonhole or vice versa, and you say, well, what happens to all the subsequent buttons? They're, they're all out of whack. 
It's as if Jesus is saying, you know, if you get that first button wrong, if you say the most important thing in my life is, is this set of circumstances or, or this other finite individual, as good as that person might be, if that is the most important thing, all the other affairs of your life are going to be off, off track. But if we understand we put the Lord Jesus first, then all those other relationships will filter through that grid. Am I prepared to detach from things in which we find earthly security and put Jesus first. I really think that, that can, it can be summed up in that one word. Verse 26 is about a, a Christ follower detaching from things that we are told in which we can find comfort. You know, say for our congregation. Well, let's, let's pin this down a little bit. What does Jesus mean by, by hating those around? What he means is detaching from the things that we naturally gravitate towards for security. Our money. At least we have that. We're a, we're a wealthy congregation. I mean, by world standards, I think very so. We say we're, we're comfortable. Say, but does my pocketbook, and I think many of our congregation is very generous, but something like that would reflect this kind of principle to say, where actually is my allegiance? Is it Jesus and then my money, or is it my money and then Jesus kind of tacked on? He says, Jesus comes first, and he will dictate those other areas. Where else should I show a healthy detachment? How about certain activities, uh, places we might not go? I always talk to businessmen when they're on trips, you know, fewer now than, than before the pandemic, but coming back around, say you go on a business trip and the other fellas, you know, after business, the, the deal's been brokered and it's time to go out. You say, well, it, it's good, it's right, make you feel good. Say there's a healthy detachment. I, I don't do that because Jesus is first. There's an uncomfortable detaching from the things that which our fallen selves like to find. Are there, are there certain activities, you know, the things that you, you don't watch? You, I, I don't watch that. world says it's good. Jesus says, no, I, I put Jesus first, and by putting him first, those other relationships, and in a very real way, you know, you know well that the things that you watch on TV does order those other relationships. Things that we look at on screens will order the other relationships. So the point is, this, Jesus sees this crowd coming, and he senses they're coming for the wrong reasons. They're coming to see the show, that they're at a distance. Jesus is nice out there, but not too close. And what he says is, do you, he turns and he says, do you, do you understand what it means to follow me? It's going to require a detachment from things that naturally in your fallen self, you'll find to take great comfort. And that there is a demand, right? The Shackleton principle, that there's a costliness here. There's a, a, hard, a hard thing to be done, to detach from the world and and a move towards Jesus. Now, verse 27, I think saying a, a very similar thing, but in the other direction. So, um, putting Jesus first, his relationship, our relationship with him orders all others. Verse 27 then, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So, if verse 26 is about a healthy detachment, verse 27 is about a hard attachment. It's about bearing witness to things. It's about doing things that the world thinks are um, just crazy ideas, that there's a humiliation involved in this. Think of Romans 1.16, right? Why does Paul write Romans, I am not ashamed of the gospel? Um, are we embarrassed of this Jesus stuff, or do we stand with our king? On this point, I can't tell you, it's, it's happened with far too much regularity, but I'll be sitting down with a man, he'll say something like this, 
Well, yeah, I had an affair on, uh, you know, I, I cheated on my wife and now all my finances and my kids don't like me and it's all such a mess. I guess this is just my cross to bear. I say, no, uh, that's the consequence of sin. Uh, carrying your cross doesn't mean the consequence of sinful behavior. Carrying our cross here, verse 27, means to say, I'm with Jesus. Jesus is king. There are parameters in my life that, that are in place for a reason, and, and I, I, I believe in those. To put it plainly, friends, there are certain beliefs that are clearly articulated in Scripture, and I know I'm try this is where Austin says, I, I'm going to say this as gently, not always my strong suit, gently, as gently as I possibly can. There are certain beliefs that are plainly stated in Scripture, for the vast history of our faith, overwhelmingly, we could call it the historic Christian position because it's so plainly said by Jesus and others that we believe here at Providence. In fact, we would ask you, 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 would, adhere, you, you would say yes to these things to be a member, that if you articulated those things in your place of work, you would be accused of creating a hostile work environment. It's not always been that way that this is a new thing, that we're thinking through that as Christians in 2023, that are there attachments, are there things that say, you know, I'm committed to that because Jesus is, that, that's what it means to follow Jesus. I'm committed to that knowing it's, it's going to get a little bit hot. How many of the, you know, conferences I've been to have said preparing the congregation for the kind of environment i mean you say we, we've again not seen this before but but what are we what are we thinking about this and have we evaluated the cost one of the books i'm reading uh, with some brothers from the church is mcalpine's and notice that this is in your notes but being the good but good is crossed out so it's it's being the good crossed out bad guys how to live for jesus in a world that says you shouldn't you see, the good is crossed out because for all of our history as Americans, say we, we have been generally the good guys. You know, oh, you, you know, the grandmother telling the granddaughter, oh, you should date that guy because he goes to church. He's a good person. You know, that, that's a good thing that the values that are taught in the church are more or less the values that are taught even by uh, non-Christians. But now, all of a sudden, that we find ourselves in a position where we're the bad guys. So this is what McAlpine writes. He says, the only way to stop being the bad guy in the eyes of the world is to become what the world says is a good guy. And right now, that means compromising in all kinds of areas where the world beckons one way and the Bible points another. So this book, his book, isn't about to stop being the bad guys. It's about how to be the bad guys. So is the church looking at our passage, looking at the Shackleton principle, which is really the Jesus principle? Have we really sat down to evaluate the world in which we occupy, what the calling of our life is when we follow Jesus? And are we willing to accept what comes with that? Now, on the quote from McAlpine, I think Mallory very helpfully this week, I, I don't want any, so we don't, we don't try to be provocative that we don't go around and, you know, just start stirring the pot and poking people, say, oh, am I trying to be the bad? No. What we're going to do is we stay faithfully following Jesus as our Savior and Lord, 
uh, accepting the boundaries that he's given us for a life of flourishing under God's authority. But as we do that as a church, as we faithfully follow, as we follow Christ together, we have to be prepared that, that more and more people aren't going to like that. We're not the moral majority. We're more like a remnant, but as we stay faithful to the Lord, that, uh, that is the calling on our lives. So again, looking at verses 26 and 27, that a Christ follower, a real Christ follower, isn't one who follows him at a distance. Say, oh, that sounds really good, some good values over there. Jesus does some good things for people. But somebody who steps in and says, you know what, there are things in my life from which I need to detach where I normally would find security and pleasure or whatever word you want to put in there, and I do that on account of putting Jesus first. And there are also some things to which I attach, some inconvenient things, some hard meetings, like our Wednesday night prayer meeting, right? That was a joke. Seven, seven o'clock, Wednesday night prayer meeting, one hour, come on. Okay, so I'm going to attach myself to some things that are hard for the sake of Christ, knowing that as I faithfully follow him, that, that some people aren't going to like me for that and I don't provoke them. All right, moving forward now, what about this progression? The progression in our culture has moved from, it wasn't that long ago, where positions of influence in our culture, it was actually a requirement to be a Christian. It was a requirement, a requirement to be a Christian to occupy those positions. Um, you can even think in as recently as the 1960s, right? I mean, to say President Kennedy, a lot of people like, you know, can somebody who venerates Mary, is this something to be considered on a national scene? Uh, but I, I think the founding fathers were very much in this camp. Say, so how can a person be an authority over others if they have no authority over themselves? Which I think to the vast majority of them was the Judeo-Christian God. That in order to lead, in order to have a position of influence, a person had to at least uh, believe in God and an authority above them. And now that is long gone. A couple of illustrations of, of how striking this can be, historically speaking. If you go back into my study, if you were to go right back there in the study and you pull out Josephus, the first century uh, Jewish historian, my English translation of Josephus, and you look at it, you'll notice that it's translated by a man called William Whiston. You say, well, why is that important? William Whiston was the Lucasian Chair of Mathematics at Cambridge. He was the successor of Sir Isaac Newton. Like Newton, he did more work on theology and history than he did on math. Moreover, why I bring this up is because William Whiston was removed from the Lucasian Chair of Mathematics for having um, an unorthodox view of the Trinity. <laughs> He would say he believed in God. He would say that he believed in Jesus, but thought that Jesus was posterior to the Father. And because of that, because of having a, a unorthodox view of the Trinity, William Whiston was removed from being a mathematics professor. Now, think of that today. <laughs> Could you imagine going to one of the, you know, go up to Dartmouth and say, you know, your, your math chair, uh, he's a little off on the Trinity, and we don't think he can teach your undergraduates. It's a, we could spend the rest of the day talking about this from mottos or, you know, I'm watching the basketball tournament a few weeks ago with many of you. you say, you ever think about something like Princeton was in the tournament? You say, why does Princeton wear orange? So all the Princeton athletes wear orange because an undergraduate a couple hundred years ago said our color should be orange after William of Orange, who uh, was a committed 
reformer, a committed Protestant who tipped the scale in the 17th century in the glorious revolution uh, to make England committed to the Protestant faith. Could you imagine an undergraduate going and made her sick? You know, we should have a color named after a, you know, after a famous strong Christ follower. So Christians, at one point, it was a requirement to be a Christian to be in a place of influence. That is long gone. Now Christ followers are removed from positions of influence. No thanks. That, too, happened a long time ago. Then the next thing on the progression you'll see is that Christ followers are removed from their jobs. It was just a short time ago, if you remember California's Proposition 8, you remember that? Kind of surprisingly, a lot of Californians said, we believe marriage is one man and one woman. Well, you remember what happened, that anybody who donated to that campaign, donated to support Proposition 8, their names were leaked. Many of them immediately removed from their jobs for saying that marriage is a man and a woman. Just this year, a man named Jack Kersey, say, let's bring it down home a little bit more. Jack, Jacob Kersey, excuse me, Jacob Kersey, a Georgia police officer, put this on Facebook. Quote, God designed marriage. Marriage refers to Christ and the church. That's why there is no such thing as homosexual marriage. That's what he wrote. Plain teaching of the Bible, historic position, up until 10 years ago, Everybody, at least the majority of Americans, said that to say anything else was really a, a strange view. Well, Jacob Kersey, you know what? Put on leave. He's out. So Christians um, will have a difficult time, I think, in each one of our roles discerning before God in our conscience what it means to not be ashamed of Jesus to what it means to represent truth and where that line is for each one of us. Again, last couple of conferences I've been to have talked about developing among the people of God a theology of being fired. <laughs> a theology of being fired is, is at what point do you say, I, 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 this is just something that I feel compromised as a follower of Jesus, and have, I thought, have we thought about that? Have we thought about that? How to be a Christian in today's setting. Okay, thir thirdly then, I said life is just made very difficult for Christ followers, and I have in mind here fines, harassment, increasing bureaucracy, somebody like Jack Phillips, you know, the cake baker. It wasn't just one instance. It continues to be many instances. They keep going after him. And so you, you start to just have certain members, certain Christian people, um, you know, targeted in, in the legal realm, uh, not being granted favor in the courts, or a whole host of things like that, just harassed and pushed down. So Christians were once, think of the, Christians were once, it was once a requirement for places of influence, long gone. Uh, then we've been removed from places of influence, definitely has happened. Then there's a lot of heat in the job, in, in, in our places of work, about what it means to follow Jesus there. We could lose our jobs. After that, we might very well be harassed. And then after that, the fourth step is uh, being physically threatened or harmed. And you say, well, really? I mean, we read about that among the... Mar really? Well, it happens in other parts of the world, and here you get a little taste of it at universities. Speaker comes in with the wrong kind of views. Several have been assaulted. It's got to start somewhere. Friends, all this leading up, I think, to these two images that Jesus is... Uh, 
uses from verse 28, he stacks, two, he stacks two extended metaphors on top of each other for us to think. One is a rash builder. One is somebody who says, yeah, I'm going to throw up a tower, and he runs out of materials. He runs out of uh, the finances and the materials to, to you know, what, what kind of rash, you know, the rash builder then is embarrassed. And then secondly, the impulsive king. The guy says, I'm going to war, but he has no idea uh, if he's got enough uh, weaponry or enough people. The point of both of these metaphors, again, is for the church, for the reader, the faithful reader, which I hope we are as we sit under God's word today, for the, the, the faithful fo- to, to think about the cost of following him. Are we really prepared? Are, are we like the rat? Yeah, I'm in. I'm in as long as it's comfortable. I'll follow at a distance. Or am I saying, I've, I see where this is going, and I stand with Jesus. That's the point. Now, a few things before we, we wind down here, just two closing points, that wherever the Bible talks about renouncing things for Jesus or suffering on account of Jesus, uh, paying the cost to follow Jesus, there's a weird, a weird paradox at play, and you'll see it across all the writers. I've got just a few in, in your examples here, but it, it comes up in the Gospels, it comes up in Paul, it comes in the author of the Hebrews, it comes up in James. But they'll all talk about when they suffer for Jesus, when they pay the cost of following Jesus, that they do so with great joy that they rejoice. Take a look at Acts 41. That's in the no- So this, this, the disciples are beaten. You, you picture the scene. They're, they're physically beaten. And Luke tells us that they left rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. That when the church faithfully follows Jesus, that when we do so not provocatively, not trying to cause any problems, not poking our non-believing neighbor, not creating a problem at our business, but uh, but when we faithfully follow Jesus and things get a bit hard, that a joy can enter in because you say, I, I am aligned with the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the one, who, the one who bought my life back, the one who's justified me, the one who sanctified me, the one who's, and, and I stand with Jesus because I owe my life to him. And I do this cheerfully. When Denny had that map up there and all those folks we interacted with, they were all MBB, Muslim background believer. They all have paid a serious cost to follow Jesus and seem to be doing so with great joy. And what is weird for us is to say, as we think about this, the cost of following Jesus, it's new for us, but it's actually very old, and that should be a comfort to us. It's not a new problem to say that people who follow Jesus might not be liked as well as we once were. But when we do so, we actually become more in line, we come more in line with what the church was when it started. Finally, I close with this. Why do you think Luke goes right from the cost of discipleship, you see the headings there, about thinking about what it means to really follow Jesus right into um, this idea of salt losing its saltiness. You say, what is the essential quality? To me, this salt and saltiness business is about the essential quality. The essential quality of salt is that it's salty. And what Jesus seems to be saying here is that the essential quality of a Christ follower is that we follow Jesus as our Lord and Savior with joy. And what we run into here is that if we lose our essential quality of really following Jesus, no matter the cost, then we're going to lose what it means to bear witness and be on mission. And so church family today, 
I just ask us, are we like the great crowds in verse 25? I gotta tell you, there's a whole lot in me that's like those crowds in verse 25. I'd like to say, Jesus is good out there, but I don't wanna get too close, you know, kind of one foot in and one foot out. I feel Jesus, he's turning and he's saying, think about what this means. Really think about what it means because if you're half in and half out and, and we're, we're trying to do the, the world's thing and toe the line and pretend that we're, you know, just like everybody else, say that this, this isn't real faith and, and it's not, it, it, we need to do some thinking. Alternatively to say, you know what, I, I'm, I'm not ashamed of Jesus. I follow him. There are things that I don't do on account of knowing him and there are things that I take upon myself because I know him. And should the cultural temperature increase and we feel more and more uncomfortable, we will do so with great joy because Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords and that we honor him and owe all to him. So I'll pray as the team comes back up. Father, we do thank you for this hard teaching this morning, helping us think through of the cost, the cost of following your son that this is, in fact, a great time to be the church. And we could say, well, it's a hard time to be the church, but it is a great time to be the church. What an opportunity we have to be faithful followers of King Jesus. And so help us, Lord, to not be today like the rash builder or the impulsive king to say, yeah, I'm in so long as it's convenient, but not really. Help us to, be, to, to, to obey the Shackleton principle, that there's no uh, loose adherence to this movement, that there aren't casual commitments but that we would not be ashamed. And that, Lord, that we would rely on you for our protection, that we would rely on you for our guidance, and that as we obey you, uh, follow you, follow your word with great joy, that we would see this as our essential quality, and that as we would maintain our essential quality, that others who don't know Jesus uh, would come into a saving relationship with him. So, Lord, we ask your spirit to allow these truths to sink in. Help us to think about them with our families, to speak about them with other members.